This episode is brought to you by JLL. Get an insider view into the world of commercial real estate with JLL's podcast, Trends and Insights, the Future of Commercial Real Estate. Whether you're curious about making cities more sustainable, the evolution of office space, or AI opportunities, this podcast will help keep you a step ahead. Tune in for candid conversations with business leaders about the biggest trends impacting how we live, work, and play. Subscribe to Trends and Insights now at jll.com slash podcast. Atheists, agnostics, long-haired weirdos, short-haired weirdos, vandals, the government, hug the government, love the government, hug the government, love the government, Welcome to The Politics Guys, a place for bipartisan, rational, and civil debate on American politics and policy. I'm Michael Baranowski, professor of political science at Northern Kentucky University. I'm joined today by not one, but two co-hosts, my conservative counterpart, Cleveland area attorney and defender of freedom, Jay Carson, as well as political scientist, Ryan Teton. Hi, guys. Hey, I'm Mike. How's it going, Mike? So we're, we're also, we, we also may be joined by Ken. He's trying to break out of a meeting. We'll, we'll see if that happens. But if so, he'll just pop in here at some random interval. But we have a lot we want to talk about today. We're going to talk about the Proud Boy sedition convictions, uh, the debt limit, possibly the end of Chevron. Chevron is something near and dear to at least the hearts of Jay and myself, certainly. The uh, Zoe Zephyr removal in the Montana legislature, uh, the execution, the, the Lack of a stay of execution in the Glossop case. There's just a ton of stuff. I can't wait to get started, and we will get started in just one second. All right, now, before we get started, though, there is something I wanted to mention that we are adding what I think is going to be a a really fun addition to the show. Every month, we're going to do a special segment of the midweek show with the topic being chosen by our supporters, and then We're going to invite those supporters to listen in as we record the segment and send us comments, which we'll be able to respond to in real time as we're actually doing the recording. And so basically, if you've ever listened to the show and find yourself, you know, saying, oh, come on, don't let him get away with that or what a horrible argument or you fool or whatever, you know, (laughs) could be great point. I don't know. You'll have a chance to comment on that in real time and have us see it and respond back. I think it should be really cool. It's going to be something that will be open to all of our supporters at the $10 per month and higher levels. Now, if you're currently a Patreon supporter at our starting level and you want to move up to be a part of this, it's really easy to do on Patreon. And if you try it out and decide, eh, I don't think so, you can go back to your lower level of support just as easily. We'll even refund you the difference if you want. And as always, you can do all of this at patreon.com slash politicsguys. That link is also always in our show notes and on our website, as well as at politicsguys.com slash support. And I'll be checking with uh, uh, everyone on story ideas later on this month. Once we've chosen a topic or once you've chosen a topic, we'll announce the day and time we'll be recording it and send out a link so that folks can join in. So, yeah, really looking forward to it. All right. So to start with, uh, just sort of a quick update on something that was later breaking. Late this week, four members of the Proud Boys, including the former head of the group, were convicted of seditious conspiracy related to the January 6th Capitol breach. On that charge alone, because they were convicted of others, they face up to 50 years in prison. Now, there is one somewhat unusual aspect of this case, and that is that the judge, Timothy Kelly, ruled that the prosecution could introduce evidence about the January 6th activities of Proud Boy members who had only limited connection to the defendants 
based on the prosecution's argument that that the jury could evaluate whether or not the rioters were tools of the alleged conspiracy. The defense called this absurd. In fact, the attorney for one of the defendants said, the argument is that just because defendants associated with people who did bad acts, they did bad acts. The other term for this is guilt by association. Now, pulling back a little bit, this brings the number of seditious conspiracy convictions related to January 6th to 14, and more than 1,000 people at this point have been charged with crimes related to January 6th, and well over 300 have either pleaded guilty or been found guilty and received sentences. So uh, to start us off, uh, uh, Jay, you mentioned earlier this week you are anti-sedition. <laughs> Do you have any other am, thoughts on this? I am opposed <laughs> to sedition. Um, no, no, and, and again, my you know my usual, usual practice is I don't like to weigh in on things like jury verdicts, right, as opposed to legal questions. Um, my my sense is that the the jury uh, had had plenty of evidence before it from which it could reach that conclusion. Um, uh, I think that's an, I think the the uh, the introduction of evidence, which is obviously going to obviously go up an appeal, right? Uh, uh, that question. Um, I think that's an interesting one. Um, and I, I don't know how that turns out. Um, you know, can you can evidence of people who are following you um, uh, be tied to you? And I, I, I think it probably can. Um, and it's a high burden uh, on appeal, right, to overturn the decision to let in certain evidence. Um, but uh, but, yeah, I'll be interested to, to watch the appeal. But otherwise, I. Um, my sense is uh, the the jury uh, seemed uh, did at least at least with this way does not did not seem to get it wrong. I don't think. And, and Ryan, are you going to take the bold position of being pro sedition? Are you going to join join Jay and myself? <laughs> boy, I didn't know that was an option. Um, well, you know, I'm, apparently I'm this is your proud boy. It is. I don't know. But. Oh, I know. There we go. Well, I'll, I'll go on record in saying I agree with what Jefferson, who said that we should have a, a revolution every twenty to forty years to to purge the government or what have you. But um, I, I, I think in this specific case, when we are looking at the charges that were brought, um, just addressing those charges, when they were looking at the uh, certification or the obstruction of the certification of Biden's victory and obstructing law enforcement, um, as well as the two other conspiracy charges they were charged with, those, those are uh, cases that I think have a lot of standing and power behind them. Whereas the uh, other charge of an assault charge that they were going to level on the floor from from stealing an officer's shield was dismissed. I think that it sets it very neatly into one camp um, of of sedition of this is what happened in January 6th and doesn't uh, mix the messages that this is why they're um, being brought up on charges. These are the charges that are important to it. So um, what that means for the future? No idea. But uh, yeah, when when you have the uh, the owner or the leader, <laughs> either way, saying, uh, you know, we're doing what has to be done and, quote, make mo- no mistake, we did this. Uh, you can't really slip out of those charges too easily. Yeah. Yeah. I, I'm not I'm not shedding a lot of tears for what seems to be a bunch of, I don't know, uh, misogynist, anti-Semitic, uh, am I forgetting, homophobic thugs uh, getting uh, getting what it seems to me they just very justly deserve. So, uh, yeah, happy story as far as I'm concerned, as long as you we probably have lost all of our Proud Boys listeners right now. So, well, we'll, we'll somehow well, manage, I guess, without that. Anyway, uh, on to our next story. And Ryan, you want to lead us into this one? 
Yeah, absolutely do. Because uh, the public debt is something that is being discussed. You know, we hear breaking the glass ceiling and we hear about the um, all these developments and, and the problems that could occur uh, with the public debt kind of coming up. And so uh, I wanted to address a little bit of the history of that and then where we are right now um, from the Constitution itself, the 14th Amendment. Um, addresses equal protection and specifically in section four of the public debt, where it says that the validity of the public debt of the United States authorized by law, including debts incurred for payment of pensions and bounties for services in suppressing insurrection or rebellion shall not be questioned. Uh, the rest of that section goes on to say that um, any cost of a rebellion can't be put on any one individual state and also deals with uh, slavery. The Brookings Institute weighs in and says the debt ceiling is the maximum amount of money that the federal government can borrow to meet its existing legal obligations. That in 1917, the debt ceiling was created by Congress via the Second Liberty Bond Act. And prior to the creation of the debt ceiling, there were parliamentary limitations on the amount of debt that the government could issue. So, you know, the the big question is, can we continue to increase our our debt limit to conduct normal business. The U.S. Treasury says, and this should be very interesting, uh, the debt limit is the total money, uh, total amount of money that the United States government is authorized to borrow to meet existing legal obligations, including Social Security, Medicare benefits, military salaries, interest on the national debt, tax refunds, and other payments. But the debt limit does not authorize new spending commitments. And so that's where Congress is trying to take a look at whether or not the roof should be raised. Now, they have always raised the debt limit in the past. In fact, since 1960, quote, Congress has acted 78 separate times to permanently raise, temporarily extend, or revise the definition of the debt limit, 49 times under Republican presidents and 29 times under Democratic presidents. Um, in fact, except for about one year during 1835, uh, 1836, etc., the United States continuously had fluctuating public debt uh, until we started moving on to raise the debt ceiling. It is raised at least 90 times in the 20th century. Um, it has never been reduced. Uh, and we could go through each of the presidents as well. A key point to remember is uh, raising the debt limit, NPR reminds us, is not about spending for the future. It is about meeting the cost of existing commitments the government has already made. Now, the White House has already weighed in and said that in 2023, the third quarter, um, they are expecting that if this does not get extended, the debt ceiling, the stock market will plummet 45 percent, leading to this is from the WhiteHouse.gov leading to a hit on retirement accounts. Meanwhile, consumer and business confidence will take substantial hits. Unemployment will increase at least 5%. Um, so they are looking at pretty dire consequences if this does not occur. Uh, the Brookings Institute takes the opposite position. Um, they have said, quote, the uselessness of a debt limit is exhibited by the fact that only one other advanced country, Denmark, has a separate debt limit rule like ours. Um, and the limit uh, the second problem is the limit inappropriately applies to gross federal debt. And number three, if the debt were not raised, the amount of spending cuts or tax increases that would be required to equal uh, would be $1.5 trillion this year and $14 trillion over the next year or 10 years. So I, I use that amount as an example of kind of how this has become a political football um, that they just use periodically and frequently, it seems. And lastly, some have asked for the Gephardt rule um, to be instituted. And that was named in honor of Representative Dick Gephardt, 
uh, from Missouri, who basically said that we could provide when the House agrees to a budget resolution that the clerk will prepare a joint resolution suspending the debt limit for the fiscal year covered by the budget resolution, meaning if it's an expensive year, um, it would automatically be raised. So the questions to both y'all. First, uh, how do you interpret the 14th Amendment's public debt clause? And how do you view the constitutionality of a congressionally imposed debt ceiling? How about we start there? Okay. Jay, why don't you go ahead and, and, and start on that one? So, no, I, I don't see that there's a, a big uh, 14th Amendment issue there. I, I think if you also look at in the, the context in which the 14th, 14th Amendment was passed, um, it was to, to, to make there, there, there were still certain states um, uh, who were, were not necessarily happy about how, how things had gone a couple of years before um, and, and to ensure that, um, uh, that there was still federal, you know, the government kept kept being funded and, and so yeah. forth. Um, I don't see there being a big, I mean, if the argument is that does the 14th Amendment prohibit a debt ceiling? Uh, I don't think it does, um, uh, nor nor would it require it. Um, I think otherwise, Ryan, you're, you're exactly right. I mean, it's, it's a political creation, um, and it's it's one that has been used for, you know, 100 years, um, sometimes with some success, sometimes without, in order to say, well, we, we ought to have some Check on spending. Um, when Mike and I talked about this last last week, um, my sense was it, it's at this point become sort of a completely ineffectual check on spending, yeah. um, uh, because uh, the the idea being that uh, oh well there will be some concession for future spending and this will sort of raise you know raise alarms right. You're like yikes, we're almost at the debt limit. Uh, we really ought to pair back, um, but that doesn't that doesn't seem to be the um, uh, how, how it typically plays out um, in terms of will the world end if um, we we miss or if there's a, a, a missed payment or something like that. I I tend to be on the uh, probably not um, uh, end of that spectrum. Um, mm-hmm. It's not going to be great, uh, but uh, likewise, I think all of the um, uh, the the people to whom the debt is owed. Uh, uh, bondholders uh, would understand that no, this is um, the full faith and credit of, of the United States is not really being called into question, and that this all is all going to get paid. Um, so my my sense is it, yeah, it, it, it's it's better not to have this. Uh, if it does happen, uh, it's it's probably not cataclysmic. Uh, it might seem cataclysmic for a couple of days, um, but then I think it would straighten itself out. Yeah, and it, it seems like we and Mike, I, I'm coming right to you on this too. I mean, it seems like we hear about this fiscal cliff and and with dire consequences. So, you know, Mike, your take here? Yeah, I, I, Jay, I think I disagree with you on on most of what you said there. So that's good. All right. uh, first off, I, I think it's it's interesting to me that you've become a spirit of the Constitution kind of guy on this one particular issue. I mean, when it says the validity of the public debt of the United States authorized by law. Uh, shall not be questioned. That to me is a pretty definitive statement. Uh, you know, so yeah. well, I, I don't think I don't think anyone's I don't think anyone's questioning the validity of of the debt, though. You sound like you're playing Clinton-esque word games here with questioning. I I, I think I think it's pretty clear what that means, and so I think the Fourteenth Amendment pretty clearly does in fact apply. And you're certainly right that it was written for the specific purposes that you mentioned, but that does not mean it does not apply for other purposes that 
to which it applies. And so I think it is unquestionable in my mind that it does, in fact, apply. Now, did the framers of the amendment mean it to apply to that? I, I don't know, but I can read the words and I know what those words say and they apply. Well, here, what, so. what do you I mean, I guess I guess how do you interpret the validity of the national of the debt shall not be questioned. I I mean, uh, and, and then put it in terms of the debt the debt ceiling. I I, interpret that. I don't see the debt ceiling thing as as being a question of the validity. I see. What um, you're saying. I, a, I I yeah. see that as a I see that as a meaning that the government has no option but to pay its debts, and so that that means that if Congress passes legislation saying that you cannot borrow any more. To, you, know, you can only borrow up to this point, which is the whole debt ceiling legislation, and the debt is more than that. We have to pay that. And so it is the constitutional duty of the executive of Treasury to pay that off. And if that's done by borrowing, which would be the most likely way to do it, well, then that's perfectly OK, because the Constitution trumps whatever legislation uh, Congress passes. So that's how I see that. Yeah. All right. Can I, can I interject and, and ask then from both of you? What do you see? Is there going to be a short term solution to this? Will there be a long term solution to this? Will it just continue to be politically motivated uh, an accusatory thing that happens every couple of years where we're hitting up against the debt, uh, debt ceiling? Or is it just uh, impractical in today's time to suggest that with the growth of tech and industry and the prices of everything and inflation, that putting any kind of limit on what we would spend over the course of a year as a country would be just nearly impossible. It, it's a bad thing we're not going to get rid of because for too many uh, in the kind of further echelons of the right, they see it as a very val valuable kind of hostage taking sort of thing. And I want to be clear on this. McCarthy has been going around saying that, oh, Joe Biden won't, won't negotiate and I'm willing to sit down and negotiate. But that's not actually true. Because if Biden sat down and said, OK, let's negotiate, you want all these entitlement cuts and other things. Well, I want uh, I want taxes raised on, on corporations and the rich. Uh, this is not it would not be a negotiation. These are a set of demands that a, a rump group and the Freedom Caucus and so forth has. And they are, are willing to hold the country hostage. And I agree with Jay that it wouldn't be the end of the world. But, for instance, Moody says that even a short debt limit breach could lead to real GDP declining, lead to nearly 2 million lost jobs. That's very real pain to actual people. And sure, maybe bondholders are fine in the end, but you know, this, real people are going to be hurt by this. And so while I disagree with it, I feel it's unconscionable. I understand why these people are doing it. And there's just too much political leverage to be gained by, uh, by doing away with it. So it's not going to happen. That's my take. Jay, what what do you think about Mike's uh, position? And also, uh, should the Secretary of Treasury, should the Treasury Department be active on this in any way? Uh, kicking to you? Oh yeah, certainly the Treasury Department should be active uh, in doing everything we can to, uh, you know, pull out all the stops of of the stuff we don't have to pay, don't pay it, and the stuff that we you know move it over and pay the stuff that we do have to pay right away. Yeah. Um. You know, and, and again, now you can only do that for so long. Right. Um. Uh, but you know, to do that to buy time, I think is, is certainly a, a good uh, a good practice. Uh, that's what that uh, we've done before, and I, I, I imagine that's what uh, Janet Yellen's working on this afternoon. But um, in terms of the uh, the other piece of I, I, what's going to happen, I mean, I think what's going to happen is what's happened a hundred other times, right? It's um, they'll, they'll agree, uh, there will be a negotiation, um, and, uh, we'll have some sort of 
either short term, short term, a uh, couple month extension or longer term, maybe year extension. Um, and this will get done. Um, so and I guess my, my, my thing, well, well it seems not to work, right? And, and the problem is that, look, if the idea is, you know, hostage taking, right? The, the whole reason we have it is, is so that, okay, um, look, um, you know, we're not going to, you know, we'll, we'll give you, we'll raise your credit limit. Um, but we're not going to, um, uh, but you got to cut back on the spending. Uh, and, and it just seems that that, that has never worked. Um, but why and, is that and, the only option? Why is cut back on the spending the only option when raising more revenues is off the table? Both of them work. Oh, I suppose it's, I suppose it's not off, off the table, but I, I think, uh, the problem is, can you actually get anyone to vote for those increased revenues? And as right. I, I say over and over and over again, right? The idea is you can always pass a tax increase. That doesn't mean you're going to collect, uh, what you think you will from that tax increase. Um, because tax increases, one, people who have the most money also have the most wherewithal to, uh, move their assets around and, and, you know, move it to the less taxable types of income. And secondly, uh, tax increases can have the, the impact on the overall economy of slowing things down, which means uh, maybe you're getting a higher rate, but you're getting lower volume, right? Just because you're having a, uh, a less impact, we're having a, a lesser overall economic activity. Um, so that's that's my reasoning. And, and look, the, the reasoning that Republicans are making, they're not they're saying, listen, um, uh, we got to, to clamp down on spending. And it's it's not a hard argument to make to say, listen, we've been spending a whole lot lately. In fact, you know, a couple of years ago, we were spending a whole lot, but now it's, it's you know, in just orders of magnitude um, difference. And, and to say that we're not going to, 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 to change our behavior um, seemed to be sort of irresponsible. Jay, I, I wonder real quick if, you know, when we're talking about uh, each administration looking at the presidencies of the recent time has spent more than the predecessor, yep. you know, and and I think that's going to happen regardless as uh, issues arise and tech increases and we're globally engaged in ways that we aren't. So I guess the question becomes, can we really ever and maybe Mike here, too, when you're talking about balancing the budget and keeping it that way, are are we really even going to ever possibly pay off that debt? When we talk about 14 trillion over 10 years and when so so instead, it seems like we go to this fiscal cliff and then we penalize soldiers and those on Social Security and those on Medicare because they won't get paid while the Democrats and Republicans up in Congress are are going to war about this subject. And it just seems like the casualties that are involved in this political scuffle are unnecessary if we just go. It's an undefinable amount of money we can never pay off. And so we have to approach it differently. But, Mike, as you said, there's going to be no kind of major overhaul on that situation. Yeah. And I should point out, I mean, I think that President Biden's been at least a little bit disingenuous in his messaging, at least, because it's pretty clear the not negotiating on, on the debt ceiling is kind of a wink, wink sort of thing. And there's now been talk about maybe an extension up until September 30th. So you can have the debt ceiling and the budget at the same time. And so it's de facto. I mean, you know, it, it works out the same way. But I think also that maybe is a is a good solution because it gives both sides possibly the ability to save a little bit of face. And even if that doesn't happen, I mean, I don't think we're going to see a trillion dollar coin, 
being minted, which is something that Janet Yellen has said she wouldn't do. It'd be pretty cool, right? But uh, because for people who don't know, there's a law that allows the Treasury to mint platinum coins in any denomination. And so the idea was they'd mint the trillion dollar coin, deposit it at the Fed and just draw off of that. Um, yeah, but, but, there, yeah. but there are things that are a little less goofy. Like, for instance, Treasury could issue what are called console bonds. And these are bonds that never actually mature. So you pay the interest on them but you never actually get the principal back. And so now the, for that kind of bond to be bought, you'd have to have the interest rate be a lot higher, but it's the sort of thing that Treasury could conceivably do in the short term, at least, to kind of get over a little bit of a hump. And I would think that that would be something that would feel a little less gimmicky than a trillion-dollar coin sort of thing, though I don't know if they're actually going to get, get to that That's point. That's still pretty gimmicky. Yeah, but it's less It, it does gimmicky. sound a lot like – it sounds like the discussion they had in 1917 that, I mean, the whole initiating of the debt ceiling, that sounds like, well, what we could do is – same conversation, new debt ceiling, maybe. You know, it it's tough. It's really tough. But, but, you know, I've been so, trying to I've been trying to sort of uh, like scope this out and say, well, okay, what happens if, say, there's an impasse? Now, Jay, you're right. It's there never has been before, but it feels like we're in much we're in a much different political environment. I mean, Kevin McCarthy became Speaker of the House by the skin of his teeth. He had to make a ton of promises. He barely got. That that bill that the, that Republicans in Congress advanced about the debt ceiling through. And so I don't think there's much wiggle room at all. And so I think it's more possible now than ever that we do get to an impasse and maybe the Biden administration does feel forced to at first do some of these so-called gimmicky things. And yeah, or invoke the public debt clause of the 14th Amendment and order Treasury to keep on borrowing. Well, what happens then? I guess Republicans in Congress sue. And I would imagine that would have to go through the D.C. federal courts yep. because you couldn't really forum the shadow there. docket. Yeah, like. but well, yep. yeah, I don't think they get. <laughs> I don't think they get an injunction to stop that because I think the courts would want to stay as far away from that as possible. Yeah. No, no, no. I think I think the courts would would probably say that's that's sort of a political question. Yeah, and so in the end, I, I think you're right. Long term, I don't see this being a huge issue. But my concern is that in the short term, if we do get to that point, and and neither side blinks until there is a default for a day or two, what the short term decline in markets in the economy might do to real people who don't have the sort of cushion that. You know, your typical bondholder might have that sort of thing. So that that to me is the tragic part of it. Mike, I think that, and I would say that we're going to sacrifice any kind of um, actual look at the policy in terms or in exchange for just short term goals of the Congress people here. And I, that's what I that's what concerns me is that I, I think you're right that we are more prone right now than ever before to reach that cliff. Because we've seen in the past, the parties themselves, especially in Congress, are less willing to compromise or even work with each other. And the solution they come up with is just ending whatever that opposition will. We talked about the the ending of the filibuster on so many of the different things, including the judicial appointments. So, um, yeah, it, it seems more probable, um, although I think the fallout exaggerated uh, the Biden White House.gov document reads like propaganda. I mean, it, it basically says that if we don't extend the debt ceiling, people will come and take groceries out of your refrigerator and, you know, kick yeah. your dog. I mean, it, yeah, it, it is. Just, that was just kind of silly. Yes, it was. <laughs> it is. It is. I mean, it reads silly. It's extreme. Um, and so when you look at any of the other economic documents or the looks at what would actually occur, they're nowhere close to it. So if, if that's what we're getting, you know, Kevin McCarthy on one side and WhiteHouse.gov on the other. 
Um, I compromise seems like why even worry about it? And then you make yourself look weak for the other party because you cave to whatever they wanted. And so that looks you or that that makes the election less certain. I uh, I think it's more likely to hit that edge because of the rhetoric and the polarization of the country. But I, I think it's dangerous if we actually do. I, I want to point out just a couple of other potential longer term implications. Uh, for instance, one is that if we do default, even for a brief period, that will almost certainly lead to at least somewhat higher borrowing costs. Uh, Brookings estimated this even for a short-term default as up to $750 billion over the next decade. That's not nothing, you know. Um, and oh, by the way, there are these other countries, these uh, so-called BRICS countries, Brazil, Russia, India, China, South Africa. Right now, they're pushing really hard for a new international trading currency to replace the dollar. This is not the time for us to be shaky on the validity of our debt, even for a little bit. So this is coming at a particularly bad time internationally as well, I would argue, especially when you take a look at the future. I mean, those BRICS countries right now, they account for more of global GDP than the G7 countries do. And so we're not making smart moves here, I think. And so it's not just, well, there'll be a little blip and it'll come back. I think we need to take a look at the bigger picture here. This is, I mean, Mitch McConnell has said a bunch of times, you know, we will not default on our debt. And I, I, don't say this very often, because, You're with but Mitch. I'm with Mitch. Absolutely. So let me talk about the, about the bigger picture, long-term picture, because I think there's, there's a piece of this here as well. I mean, Ryan pointed out, this is this a debt that will ever be repaid? Um, I don't know, but the issue is as the debt increases, uh, it is going to get more and more difficult to continue to service that debt. Yeah which is what we're talking about right now, right? The debt service is, is, is higher than it was before. And, it gets a little, and every time we have to keep raising that ceiling um, because of the debt service issues, right? Um, it, at some point, if, if, you, if you don't rein in uh, spending um, or if you come up with some way to, to get revenue, if you, you'd rather do it that way, um, uh, you you are going to to reach a, a point where where debt service eats up more and more of the budget, uh, and and becomes uh, more and more more and more difficult. And, and countries will look at this and say, um, you know, look, it's it's one thing to say you're you're paying your uh, your interest due on uh, you know whatever ten trillion. What are we we're now on 90, 93 trillion for and counting. It's yeah. It, yeah, I have not done the numbers yeah. for me. Um, but what what happens when you get to two hundred trillion? Right? I mean, is, at some point it becomes unmanageable. And again, if you're talking about about you know a currency uh, being the the uh, the currency that the people flock to, um, that that will tend to erode the dollar. And, and again, so keep in mind the debt payment. It's also backed by by assets, right? It's not just the the payment stream, but also assets. Just, just a uh, clarification. It, right now, I just pulled the U.S. national debt clock, which is which is a dizzying sort of thing. But right now, the national debt's thirty-one point seven trillion. So, um, okay. So, but, but uh, no, maybe I was thinking. I was thinking the yeah per person. It's something like ninety-seven. Okay. Uh, thousand per person. That's why I got that number. Okay. Well, yeah. but uh, but I I think you know it's a fair point. I I don't want to. I don't want to defend the modern monetary theorist folks because I'm not really in that camp. But I also think that it's important not to have an oversimplified version of that because the, the, the money that you are spending 
is not money that you're just burning up. I know maybe you don't believe that, Jay, in some instances, but it is money <laughs> that is going to things that may actually be fostering growth and innovation and so forth. Oh, no, so, I, I very much believe Okay, that, yeah. so you got to balance that against it. So it's not like you can just say, well, a dollar of a dollar of debt taken on is a dollar where minus because that dollar creates something. And if for every dollar of debt we take on, we could get a buck 25 out of that. Well, that would be crazy not to take on all the debt in the world in the short term. Yeah. But are, are you getting that return? In some when cases spending, we are. Yeah. In some cases we're not. When you're spending, because again, the, the conservative position would often be, listen, if you want to borrow uh, and issue bonds or something like that for infrastructure improvements, capital improvements, um, those types of, of things, that's, that's one story. And you typically don't see, you know, too much conservative resistance to that. But when you are, you're doing it for things that are just straight on operating costs and, uh, entitlements, um, where you're not getting an asset in return and not saying, well, this is going to help, help us, um, um, uh, you know, continue to, to, to grow the economy. This is not, you know, the new freeway that's going to make, uh, transportation um, uh, better and and uh, in- increase uh, efficiency and uh, productivity. Um, that that's the problem, and I think that's that's the concern is that this is just um, not being spent in ways that are those type of, of investments. The, can I ask if either of you think that it would be more likely than for that bricks or that uh, universal? money uh to be established um given that debt ceiling coming up because especially the newer generations this is what i mean when we saw bitcoin we saw that there was a big surge of the newer generation trying to move on to digital currency even like dogecoin and all these other ludicrous things that we saw got for you kids yeah exactly right (laughs) but you're looking or, or gamestop rocketing through the earth but you're looking at them trying to find something that is not the dollar um, that they can trade in universally, no matter what country or where they're buying anything. Um, do we see this as being more open less to maybe that um, currency that's universally shared with these other countries and more towards a digital currency that might be used more popularly than the dollar? I, I don't think anything is going to supplant the dollar in the short term. At best, I think the thing that the BRICS are working on uh, is going to be some sort of a smaller scale supplement. Like right now, for instance, the trade that uh, I think that now all the trade between China and Russia is denominated in Chinese currency as opposed to dollars and so forth. So I, I think that's just kind of a minor supplemental type role. And, and you can even make the case, and some have, that having the dollar be the reserve currency as both a benefit, certainly in some ways, because it gives our sanctions more bite than anyone else's, but also it can be harmful as well in a number of ways that we can't really get into here, but it's, it can be a mixed blessing basically. All right. Um, well, I am sure we're going to be talking more about this in the weeks to come. <laughs> Hopefully it's not the, the headline is U.S. defaults, but, but we shall see. Get ready for Dogecoin, I'm telling you. (laughs) All right, well, let's move on then to our next story. Um, The Supreme Court this week announced that it would hear Loper Bright Enterprises versus Raimundo. And this is a case in which the court will be considering overturning or modifying the Chevron deference doctrine. And that is that court should defer to an agency's reasonable interpretation of an ambiguous statute. Now, this is a nearly 40-year-old precedent, but it's been 
chipped away by the court in recent years, most notably with the emergence of what's called the major questions doctrine, which requires that in matters of so-called vast economic and political significance, the court shouldn't defer to agency interpretations, but instead should hesitate before concluding that Congress meant to confer such authority. That's how Chief Justice Roberts put it in his majority opinion in West Virginia versus EPA from just last year. So here's the situation in Loper. The National Marine Fishery Service has a rule that requires that fishing boat operators pay government observers on their boats. So they pay them to be on their boats, regulating them, basically. So now there's a cap on this, 3% of the value of the boat's haul. But the requirement for payment by the operators, you can't find that anywhere in the legislation uh, that authorized this called the Mangus-Stevens Act. The act only says that vessels may be required to carry federal observers to enforce regulations, not pay them. So in a divided ruling, the D.C. Circuit found for the government on the grounds that, well, this is ambiguous legislation. The agency made a reasonable interpretation. Loper appealed and the court granted cert. Now, Justice Jackson will not be hearing this case. She recused herself because she was on the D.C. Circuit when the case came before it. Now, longtime listeners of the show, you know that Jay and I love talking about Chevron deference and the major questions doctrine. We were hoping we'd have Ken with us. Maybe he'll pop pop in here before his uh, I, next. I think he's with us. Uh, is All he? Right. Oh, well, Ken, great timing. I just did the background on, on the case. And actually, that, that is perfect timing because I wanted to turn it over to you. I was just explaining to folks what uh, Chevron deference is, how the court's been chipping away at it, the major questions doctrine in West Virginia versus EPA. And I thought you could talk a little bit, start us off by talking a little bit about whether you think the court is likely to overturn Chevron entirely in this case or modify it, or as I believe Loper asked to at least clarify, which would kind of weaken it in some sense. So what are your thoughts, Ken? Yeah, well, it's hard to know whether they'll openly uh, overrule it or whether they will um, narrow it in a way that essentially nullifies it. But I think I think it is dead. Um, you know, so you sometimes see the Supreme Court you know, killing killing doctrines and 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 not openly saying so. Um, but I and I I just tuned in, so I didn't completely hear your explanation of it. But the the concept of Chevron, as you probably just told the listeners, was um, that if 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 a, um, a statute that Congress drafts is um, is ambiguous um, and susceptible of more than one reasonable interpretation, um, then it's the agency rather than the court that gets to choose the the, the interpretation. Um, and and that you know that that's an important doctrine. Um, you know, in in principle, whether you had a Chevron doctrine or not, Congress could legislate with specificity, and then courts would um, enforce the statutes. And that that would be true with that's true under Chevron. That would be true without a Chevron doctrine. Um, but but in the real world, uh, Congress rarely rarely does that. Um, and so you really typically have a zero sum game. Between uh, um, executive agencies or courts, in terms of who who's going to be the primary engine of policymaking, um, Congress has the right to do that, but they almost always absent themselves from that. So by default, it falls to either either executive agencies or the, or the courts. And uh, I, I think this court obviously does want to be the primary engine of policymaking, and especially doesn't want to defer to Democratic administrations uh, on that front. Um, and I think that's really all you need to know to know which way they're headed. Well, yeah, you know, there was a great, there was a great, great line from Justice Gorsuch. Uh, this was actually in a dissent 
from in a case where the court didn't grant cert back in 2022, Buffington versus McDonough. Uh, Gorsuch wrote about Chevron. At this late hour, the whole project deserves a tombstone no one can miss. We should acknowledge forthrightly that Chevron did not undo and could not have undone the judicial duty to provide an independent judgment of the law's meaning in the cases that come before the nation's courts. Someday soon, I hope we might. And I think that day has come. Jay, what do you think? Yeah, absolutely okay. it has. Um, yeah, I, 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 think, uh, I think that's right. I think in a lot of ways it's, Chevron is is sort of dead. It's just the uh, the, the obituary hasn't been written yet. Um, so I, I think that's that's what may be coming. That said, this case is one where you could still narrowly because the the what the, the petitioners asked for was you know say no Chevron or just say come on. Uh, there are limits to Chevron deference that you can't. Uh, reasonably uh, uh, draw from silence, right, in the statu- statutory silence, uh, the ability to require someone to house uh, and pay um, and quarter on their on their their vessel, uh, their own their own regulator. Um, so I think there's there's room where you can you can find if they don't want to go that far, they could probably go just about. Uh, up to that line and say, uh, no, this is uh, this is a case where we will perhaps defer to agencies in a reasonable uh, reading of the statute, but uh, there has to be something in the statute uh, to to tie it to, right? And I think when you have, well, you have other statutory silence, I think that's that's a bigger a bigger stretch. So I, I think there's there's two kinds of um, different kinds of cases that get decided under Chevron. Um, and I, I think it's it's useful to talk about them separately rather than um, talk about them together. So some statutes have uh, a, a term in the statute that may, may may not be well defined. That was actually the, the story in the Chevron case itself, right? So the Chevron case itself involved um, a, a provision of the Clean Air Act that said that if a, a stationary source of pollution uh, wants to increase its pollution emissions. Um, it needs to get a permit from EPA. And there was no definition for the word stationary source um, in the Clean Air Act. And so the, the actual question in Chevron was, um, if you have one factory that has three smokestacks, is that one stationary source or three stationary sources? Um, and the, the uh, Carter administration had said that's um, three stationary sources. And the Reagan administration changed that and said, no, that's one stationary source. And the court in Chevron said, well, since the Congress didn't define the term and there really is no definition of the term um, and it could be one or it could be three, uh, the the only uh, possible thing that a court should do is recognize that this is really a policy question and it's more appropriate to let the uh, elected president uh, make that decision and his administration make that decision than for the court to make that decision because there's no actual law that could guide whether that's one or three stationary sources. Congress didn't define it. And you know, so that's one kind of um, ambiguity that pops up in Chevron cases. Um, the other kind of ambiguity, though, that probably pops up in many more Chevron cases, in the majority of Chevron cases, even though it wasn't the story in Chevron itself, um, is when the, there is statutory language. Um, it's just that the statutory language broadly empowers the agencies, right? So a, a, lot, of, a lot of statutes have very broad generic grants of policymaking authority to agencies. So, for instance, the Communications Act 
says that nobody can use the public airwaves without getting a license from the FCC. And when the FCC decides who to give a license to, the FCC should give it to whoever they think would best serve the public uh, interest, the public convenience, and the public necessity. Now, those words are also vague, but they're actually vague you know, on purpose. It's, it's not because, as in Chevron, Congress couldn't think to define stationary source, but rather it's because Congress used that kind of broad language because they just wanted to give that policymaking authority to the agency. And so, although you will hear a lot of conservatives say, well, that, 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 that language is silence, um, I don't think that's an accurate way to talk about it. That's not silent language. That's language that broadly empowers agencies to engage in policymaking. And, and I think that's what the court's going to cut off because the court wants to itself engage in all that policymaking and not let the agencies do it. I, I, don't, I don't know. I, well, cause when you mentioned that, Ken, I know at least Justice Kavanaugh in the past has suggested that deference should actually apply in exactly those cases he mentioned when authorizing legislation uses what he called broad and open or, open-ended terms, and he suggested words like reasonable, appropriate, feasible, or practicable. And that sounds to me very much like the argument you were just making. And in the first instance you were talking about, that reminds me of something actually Jay suggested when we were talking about Chevron a few weeks ago, where he suggested that, well, it makes sense to have deference on those sort of technical type of issues, like what counts as a source and that sort of thing. And so I don't know. I, I I understand what you're saying, but but I think that there might still be a majority on the court to narrow it, but not. I don't think necessarily unreasonably. I think Kavanaugh makes a good point, and that I think Jay makes a good point too, and that silence is different from ambiguity. And of course, the first part of the Chevron test is to decide whether or not the the uh legislation uh, is is uh, ambiguous in any way and if you find that it's not well then it doesn't even apply and so i, I would argue that silence and ambiguity are, are two very different things whereas taking silence to mean assent that's that to me is a little more questionable and i'm no great foe of the administrative state or anything but i can sort of see that point uh yeah, anyway i guess well, i guess i, 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 I so I was going to jump in, and it kills me to say this, but I agree with Ken on, on a lot of what uh, what he just said. Um, I, I not not entirely, but um, uh, I think there are. It's there are two kind of cases. There there are the the ones that you just mentioned, like the original Chevron, uh, where there is some term or some ambiguity that you can say could be reasonably open to uh, 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 different interpretations. And then there's there's oh, the case like, like you saw in in West Virginia. Uh, and you saw it with the uh, the rent um, case uh, and the, the vaccine mandate cases that you get in the major questions doctrine because major questions it's sort of like a different it's sort of a Chevron variation right it's it's uh, but but there are statutes that have these sort of catch all uh, uh, clauses at the end of them and like it's sort of and take other reasonable acts you know etc um, that uh, that agencies will then point to and say aha. Uh, here we we uh, we have this this catch-all that allows us to do anything else, and I think that's that's where the major because I, I don't see I don't see um, uh, Loper as necessarily as a, as a um, major questions type case. Uh, I think it's it's more of the pure uh, Chevron variety. And again, that maybe that's I'm kind of splitting hairs there. But. I don't think so. That that was my thought too, because this is not a matter of vast economic or political significance. So it's just paying this guy on your boat a little bit, to, you know, regulate it. And so, yeah, that may be a pain in the butt, but that doesn't qualify as a major, yeah, major question. 
Michael, I was only going to push. I was going to push back more against Michael than against Jay, which is surprising too. <laughs> it's bizarre. I, 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 I don't, <laughs> Michael, I don't think the distinction you were making between silence and, and ambiguity ever actually exists in any actual statute that Congress has enacted, uh, because Congress always has these broad generic grants of power in all these statutes. So, so you're really always talking about a situation where Congress has said to an agency. You've got certain powers, you've got certain responsibilities, there's certain things you have to regulate, you should do A, B, and C, and you should do whatever else you need to do. And, and that's what the statute always says. And so it's never silent. It, 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 may, it, may, it may say, do whatever else you need to do. And, and some courts will say, well, we should decide what needs to be done. The agency shouldn't decide what needs to be done. But we're always starting from a, a statute where Congress has said that an, a problem should be solved, something should be regulated. But Congress hasn't um, given that much guidance, but they have given authority. Uh, yeah, I see. You. I, may, you might be right in the, the larger picture. I would defer to you on that, uh, most likely. But I guess I was looking at this this specific case, and it seemed to me that this was an instance where clearly the act said, "Yeah, you have to carry federal observers if they, you know, if, if at their request." But to me. Not saying anything about comp that that's a pretty big that's a pretty big silence. Expressio unius uh, as uh, yeah. <laughs> okay, that whatever. That's Jay. Latin there, Mike. I, I, no, maybe, it, no. The the idea if you express one thing, you are excluding other things. If you say, hey, you can do X, it it is read to imply uh, that you can't do Y. And maybe but, this, but there's no. Go ahead. There's, besides the fact that there's many Supreme Court cases that say expressio unius has no application in administrative law, um, it, it's also it couldn't possibly have application in administrative law because all the statutes say the opposite, right? They, they all say, and the agency has powers to broadly protect the public interest or to protect public safety. They, Kim, they what, what would we what would we need elected uh, congressional representatives for? What's the limiting principle? Well, the limiting principle is that Congress can legislate in whatever level of specificity they want to, or whatever level of generality they want to, and that the. Right. the and, they, but at that point, then the the if they there's always going to be some level of generality at the end, right? There's always going to be uh, some catch-all or other appropriate measures, uh, at which point the the agency would be able to do whatever it wants. Well, no, because Chevron has says that it has to be a reasonable interpretation, right? But also the, the statutes often specify things that the agency can't do, and, and the agency does have to stay within constitutional limitations as well. But generally, the, the doctrine, even before Chevron, we're really going all the way back to the 40s and Skidmore versus Swift. You know, Chevron just makes it a little bit more rigid. But we've, for most of the period of time we've had administrative law, agencies have been able to um, exercise broad policymaking authority. And it's really only in the, in the fairly modern Supreme Court cases of the last decade or so that, that the courts really started uh, cutting back on that in any significant way. And I, I would kick in here and just I, I've been silent because um, I've learned not to argue with lawyers, um, but not, just joking. But from a, an institutionalist perspective, uh, you know, we teach this and we say this is bureaucratic discretion that Congress creates these administrative vagaries so that they can be specifically applied to whatever state or culture or uh, occasion they would need to be applied to. So, you know, I look at this as um, a kind of an unfunded mandate way too. Is it is it putting a burden on them by mandating they pay someone to to be on board? 
but again, uh, again, that your bureaucratic discretion, I, I agree with, well, most all y'all, <laughs> they, uh, they will take it and be able to use that to craft, um, better specific policy generally. So in the end, then before before we move on, because I know Ken, you have to you have to leave. So your your prediction on this is that the court will. Do you think you don't think they'll actually overturn it, but in effect overturn Chevron by just making it entirely toothless? Is that? Yeah, you know, I, I don't know if you guys talked about Kaiser versus Wilkie at all, but they they did something just like that in a very analogous context. So um, so besides Chevron, which which deals with um, agency interpretations of, of statutes. There's another thing that comes up a lot where um, agencies have to interpret their own uh, agency regulations. And uh, for, 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 for decades and decades, going, going back to, um, uh, you know, again, really starting with Skidmore v. Swift, which is from the 40s, but most associated with a case called Seminole Rock versus uh, Bowles, um, the, the, the Supreme Court has long said that the same kind of deference or even stronger deference applies when an agency is um, in interpreting uh, regulations that it promulgated, uh, that that's at least as much deference, probably more deference than, than what an agency gets when it's interpreting a, a statute. And um, just a couple of years ago in Kaiser versus Wilkie, um, the court said, well, we're, we're reaffirming um, Seminole Rock and we're, we're reaffirming that the, there's deference when an agency interprets its own regulations, but we're, but we're uh, revising what that means and then they kind of made like a big laundry list of factors that lead to, in the end, the conclusion that there's there's no deference um, when an agency interprets its own regulations. And so, you know, in that case, they denied that they were formally overruling um, uh, uh, Seminole Rock, uh, but but they but they made it so clear that they factually had overruled it that both the concurring opinions and the dissenting opinions, you know, noted that. And and the, the dissenting opinions said, well, even though I'm dissenting because they didn't overrule Seminole Rock. You know, I'm taking a victory lap anyhow because they they killed the patient in trying to save it, and and the concurring opinion said, yeah, the dissenting observations uh, uh, observation is correct. So so there were there were as many votes in that case noting that um, the way that the the Seminole Rock deference was saved was by actually saving it in name only and, and nullifying it. Um, you know, there, there were as many votes observing that as there were actually voting to save it. So I, I think that's probably what we're in for all over again. Jay, final final question to you. Do you think that uh, Justice Jackson not hearing this case makes it more likely that uh, that Chevron will just be overruled or uh, essentially overruled? No, I think uh, I, I think whatever happened, she would have been in the minority, uh, whether she's, um, you know, whether she participates or doesn't participate. Uh, the question is, is there five votes? And I don't think she would have been the, one of those five votes to, to overturn it in any event. So. Um, yeah, I don't, I don't think it makes a difference. And, and you think you would agree with Ken that you expect it to be largely, uh, uh, uh eviscerated? I, if not I do. Overturned? Okay. I do. Yeah. And, yeah. uh, Ryan, what do you think on this one? <laughs> uh, I think I'm very interested to see <laughs> which of these uh, different scenarios play out on the basis of these that you propose. Uh, I mean, uh, the way we think it should go, uh, over the last few years, all bets are off hard left. So uh, I'm I'm interested to see how that plays out as well. All right. Well, I, I, I think it is safe to say that Chevron will not emerge from this unscathed. And we will know much more later on in the year when the court hears oral arguments and then rules on the case later on in its term. All right. Why don't we move on to our next story and our last story for a regular show? And Ryan, why don't you go ahead and uh, lead us into this one? 
Absolutely. And so here we are looking at uh, Montana Representative Zoe Zephyr. Um, according to Montana Public Radio, Zephyr spoke in opposition to a ban on gender affirming care for transgender minors on the House floor in Montana. She said, quote, if you vote yes on this bill and yes on these amendments, I hope the next time there's an invocation or prayer, when you bow your heads in prayer, you will see the blood on your hands, Zephyr said. Immediately after her comments, House Majority Leader Sue Vinton and the Republican caucus stood in protest and, uh, quote, Speaker of the House Matt Riger of Kalispell declined to recognize Zephyr during floor debate. So they have suspended her from any kind of recognition on the floor. Um, quote, there have been problems in the past. I don't feel like in the future until that trust is restored, um, it will be recognized, Riger said. Uh, Riger and Zephyr um, basically have been going head to head on this. Um, Riger said in response to her comments, shame on you, turning around and saying shame on you for somebody's vote, degrading somebody for how they're going to vote. That's way off the issue and making it personal. Um, every vote is personal. But uh, the AP has said uh, that when we talk about blood on the hands, the uh, incident or the words that are being utilized, they've been used numerous times by others in American politics without consequence, um, including in recent years by the Republican governor of Texas, a Republican congressman in Florida, and a council member in Denver. Uh, the Montana Freedom Caucus members, those that are supporting her ban, quote, have deliberately referred to Zephyr with masculine pronouns when discussing her in an example of misgendering or using pronouns that don't match their gender identity. The chair of the caucus has indicated it will continue and have called her protest an insurrection. Um, she is saying that she has been removed untowardly and cannot represent the people in her own district, including, quote, one family whose trans teenager attempted to take her life while watching the hearing on the anti-trans bill. Um, when you are looking at this issue generally, this comes three weeks after the Tennessee House voted to expel representatives Justin Jones and Justin Pearson for using a megaphone on the floor. Uh, the Speaker of the House, again in Montana, says that Zephyr violated the rules of the chamber during the debate and would be blocked from speaking. Her response, quote, your rights stop at a legislative supermajority, evidently. Zephyr said in an interview, if two-thirds of a body decide that you and your constituents don't deserve a, present, a representation, you don't get it. Um, quote, that should be a huge worry for many who want to stand up for democracy. And as of May 1st, the American Civil U Liberties Union uh, of Montana uh, is seeking to file a lawsuit to have her reinstated. Um, first question, uh, what is going on in Montana to either of y'all? Well, I, I, I got to say, I think uh, in the lawsuit, I think the judge got it right in saying that this was a legislative decision and that he didn't have the authority to reinstate her for the rest of the session. But, 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 but to me, you know, I, I feel like, Zephyr's right in saying, she said at one point, if you use decorum to silence people who, you, who hold you accountable, then all you're doing is using decorum as a tool of oppression. And yeah, I think there's, I think there's something to that. I think just like in the Tennessee case, we saw a bunch of legislators overreact to someone who granted was using inflammatory rhetoric to make a point, 
And then it escalated. You have to apologize before you come back. No, I'm not. You get protesters to come into the Capitol. And then all of a sudden, she's an insurrectionist. I'm rolling my eyes, right? But and so, again, to me, it's very much like Tennessee is where you have a bunch of, I don't know if they're all good old boys, but state legislatures, especially the less professionalized ones, tend to be rather good old boy centric. I think maybe tend to see young activists and especially trans people as these strange beings who are threatening their way of life and they overreact and then feel like they can't back down because how would you explain backing down to that weirdo to your constituents? I think that's how a lot of them see that. I don't certainly don't hold that view myself. So that's kind of my take. No, and they've uh, to to add a little bit to that, you know, the inflammatory rhetoric being a communication person, the 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 selective hypocrisy of what will be um, earth shattering or hate filled rhetoric uh, versus not seems to depend on the person <laughs> whose eye is in the beholder. Because I've I've watched some congressional hearings uh, with uh, John McCain, uh, rest in peace, uh, and uh, the language there was um, not blood on your hands. Uh, I don't think I could say it without an extended beep for two to three minutes. So uh, this it seems like an excuse and. I don't know, Jay, I was going to ask if you think this is indicative of a generational conflict now that we've seen it not only in two, but in a third state house, um, uh, either Arizona or New Mexico. And I may be misstating that, but we were watching today. A uh, legislator has been removed as well. Um, Jay, your thoughts. So I would a uh, couple things. Um, one, I think there is there's a distinction between uh, the Montana situation and the Tennessee situation. Um the the Montana situation being let, let's put it this way I would say in generalities first of all speaking to my Republican brethren um, uh, can no one here play this game um, you know again I just it, it, tactically uh, politically um, I think in in both cases these these have been dumb um, overreactions um, uh, I think it's it's not consonant with with what we would think of as as democracy. Uh, now, I, I that said, I'm, I'm completely fine saying that I, I imagine under their house rules, I haven't checked their their uh, their local rules, but uh, the speaker typically has the privilege to recognize or not recognize uh, anyone on the floor or allow or not allow any type of discussion. Um, that's that's I would imagine pretty standard uh, in most uh, most any um, uh, state house, uh, most any organization. Um, so, you know, when when you say the speaker says, you know, I'm not going to recognize you're not going to do this. Um, uh, is that an assault on democracy? No, not really. Uh, is it dumb politics? Yes, very much so. Um, uh, there was a time in Ohio and one of my my heroes, my mentor, actually uh, wore a dog muzzle uh, onto the floor of the Ohio State House <laughs> um, because uh, to show that he was he was not being allowed to speak because the speaker had refused to hmm. recognize him uh, long term on a various various things. Um, uh, back in those days, nobody got thrown out. We just wore the dog muzzle and uh, <laughs> the speaker, uh, you know, looked like an ass uh, and, and eventually got the speaker. So anyway, but but my 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 point is. Uh, I don't I don't I think the um, uh, the reaction in um, Tennessee was different uh, where you did have what the actions of, of those legislatures, of those legislators were taking was actually interrupting and stopping the proceedings uh, of the of the body on other stuff. Right. 
Um, they weren't in the process of debating a, a gun safety bill. It was something else. And they just interjected and took a megaphone. And and really, it was, to me, it, it was much more insurrectionist in, in that you're stopping a public meeting. Um, uh, so I, I, I have more sympathy, uh, for, uh, the actions taken in Tennessee than I do here, where it seems like, uh, she made a, a speech that was impassioned. Uh, maybe it's over the top. Maybe it's, maybe by Montana standards, that's too much. I would, would tend to agree with what Ryan said by historical standards, uh, uh, some saying something like blood on your hands. That's, you know. Uh, it's, it's, um, you know, that's high octane, but that's, that's not beyond the pale. Uh, you know what I mean? So, uh, and, and if it's, if it's done in the, the, you know, pursuit of debate on, on that bill and there's no other, uh, you're holding up, uh, business, uh, it seems to me to be a complete overreaction, uh, and, uh, Jay, to, to shut somebody down. Uh, Jay, and I was going to say, you know, it, I, I absolutely understand that difference. I think the problem that I had was when the chair then stripped her of being able to vote in person. Yeah, no, I think that's that's a much bigger problem. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I would I would agree because I think that's that's something. It's one thing to say I am the speaker of the House and pursuant to our rules, I decide who gets to speak on the floor, et cetera. Uh, but when you're denying someone a right to vote, that that does go into a, a different constitutional kind of kind of realm there. And it, and it gets dangerously close to that other kind of social realm, too, because now it's OK, we're taking away the political right to vote. Um, but at the same time, this is a trans rat, uh, representative uh, and the caucus in Montana, whenever they feature her picture, will show the picture of uh, her as a male uh, pre transition. Um, she and her girlfriend have been swatted. Um, they've uh, the SWAT teams have been called. And the only thing not by the speaker of the House, I presume, though, uh, pardon me. Not by the speaker, I presume, though. No, well, I, <laughs> <laughs> that we know of, right? I don't know the politics of Montana, man. I don't ask. <laughs> play for we'll keeps leave, up there. We'll leave that for Matt. I do. I do not believe it was linked to him. Uh, however, it my my concern is that it takes a protest level and reacts not only badly to it, but which with such hostility that at some point this younger generation looks up and goes, "Okay, so if we talk this way or act this way, you'll throw us out." And then we don't get a, you know, it's like we talked about in Tennessee. I understand the differentiations here, but it has very much the feeling of you have to go sit at the children's table. And in fact, in this one, they said they wouldn't even recognize her until 2025, yeah. um, possibly, which you're going, really, this is something that a, a democratically established institution will be able to share. So so I think that's where I have big hesitation on that. Yeah, no, I know. I think now there there is law and in, in, uh even Ken Ken would back me up on this if he was here. Uh, that says, look, a, a Congress can be the judge of its own members, uh, and likewise, uh, I imagine that applies to states under the various state constitutions. Um, you know, can sit uh, and determine the qualifications of, of their members. Um, but I would agree it's 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 a it's a dumb it's a dumb fight to have, um, and and an unnecessary. Um, uh, Blowing up now. So the other the other piece of this, I, although I'll say, and I don't know enough about um, the facts of of Montana, uh, uh, but I will say with Tennessee, sure. there, there's also a bit of uh, uh, the performative in all of this. That um, to some extent, it's sort of oh please 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 uh, throw me out, um, please you know you know the 
um, uh, these these legislators from Tennessee uh, would not have received the White House welcome and uh, you know national heroes and all that sort of, but for uh, what was sort of a publicity stunt. Um, Which gets to so your I, I can no one play this game on our side sort of thing. Because exactly, exactly. Right, we yeah, wouldn't be yeah. talking yeah. about Zoe Zephyr. Yeah. We took we always yeah. take the bait. Yeah. Yeah, well, just, you know, it becomes political shenanigans. That's that's the another issue I have is how do we separate the battles that are supposed to be fought from the battles that are being waged on behalf of someone who just wants to engage in political shenanigans? Yeah. Well, no, um, no again, I think I think to some extent that the Tennessee uh, three there kind of kind of forced the speaker's hand. Right. That if it, at some point, if if you are no longer in control of the of the House. Right. If if uh, you can't carry on public business. um you know, you you can't let that slide. Um, uh, but uh, over overblown rhetoric, uh, uh, I think you can let slide and should let slide. Well, you know, it also occurs it's a commonality to me, in politics. Right? <laughs> but 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 you know, we go back to go back to two thousand and nine. Obama's giving a, a something a State of the Union, right? And uh, Joe Wilson yells out, "You lie." Right. Uh, and, and everyone was like, oh, my God. But and now I think we really see over that what the course of that, what, 13 plus years, how the just increased hyper partisanship has really degraded our standards of conduct. And I get it from both sides. I mean, if you really feel that what is being done is literally that these folks will have blood on their hands, that kids will die because of this. Then do you just sit and be decorous and not say or do anything? Well, that's a hard that's a hard case to make. So I, I certainly and you take a look. I mean, back historically, some of the things that happened in the lead up to the Civil War in Congress were you know like uh, canings and all Beating kinds with of the cane, yeah, exactly. Yeah. So I mean, when people care this much, this is kind of bound to happen. And but I think the best strategy, if you don't want to escalate it, is not to respond if you don't have to respond to it, certainly. And and I I mean, I, I applaud Zoe Zephyr for speaking the truth as she sees it. And I certainly, you know, agree with her on the policy issue. And I think she did her cause a great favor by by getting the, I don't know how planned it was. It seemed more spontaneous, but in any, in any case, there was bait out there, whether it was intentionally put out there yeah. or not. And well, again, to me, then to me, that's bait that you didn't have to respond. Exactly. To, right? Exactly. As opposed to in Tennessee. To yeah. It's you a good just point. said, you know, let her make the speech and thank you very much. And, you know, well now the house will now proceed to vote. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I, I, as a strategist, I, I would completely agree with that. I think taking that next step, um, tends to reiterate that there are these two sides and no, I, I call it communication without compromise. You know, nobody is, nobody's looking to solve a problem. They're going to talk at each other and then go vote. And I think that leads to your point, Mike, which is how, if you are a new legislator, do you bring up an issue that is very, very important or that is being currently ruled upon in a way that people will understand the gravitas of the situation? Um, and, and this new generation, uh, of legislators will use different methodologies than have been used in the past, or maybe same methodologies, but just haven't been used in a while. Well, I mean, I'll, I'll tell you, cause this is, this is something that Mike, this is one of the reasons I was originally, you know, even on the show, right. Um, is, is because I have played the game and, and the way you, the way it works is you have a caucus meeting beforehand and you say, okay, here's the bill. Uh, here's who's sponsoring it. Here's who we're gonna, who's going to speak. You're going to talk about this. You're going to talk about that. He's going to introduce this amendment. 
um, you know, you're going to second the amendment and do that. Here's what we expect the other side to say. They're going to they're going to say, da, da, da. They're going to introduce this amendment. We'll vote on it. We'll vote against it. But you, you, you plan it out. Yeah. And and you you budget in like, you know what? All right. We're going to be debating here for six hours. Um, but everybody's going to get to have their say. And uh, at the end of end of that debate, uh, the speaker will say the House will now prepare and proceed to vote and bang the gavel and you vote. And then that, that's it. Right. And that that works. I mean, and, and you know, if what it, you don't, uh, you know, obviously the, the other rule, of course, is is a speaker isn't going to bring uh, a piece of legislation to the floor if, if they don't have the votes for it. Yeah, but, but um, I think but I think also should point out that Ohio, when we look at state legislatures, Ohio is a pretty professionalized full time legislature with or full time ish with good staff. <laughs> but yeah, but we take a look at, say, Tennessee. Tennessee is a is is isn't the same level of legislative professionalism. Montana definitely isn't. They have much smaller. And that that stuff really matters because you in a state like Ohio. In, this, in, in some of these states with the more professional Congress-like, if you will, legislatures, you're going to have people who are going to be better at playing that game because you get better with practice and with, with that kind of professionalism. And so it's not surprising to me that this is the sort of thing that has come out of states like Montana and Tennessee when I just I think just the legislative structure and the legislators themselves are not as experienced and well-equipped and well-staffed to be able to handle things like this. And Mike, I'd real quickly add yeah. that she's. I, don't know. I would think I would think Tennessee. I mean, Montana. I guess I can see right because it's just the less smaller population and just. Now Tennessee is one of your. I mean, it's not like it's a big state. It's not way down low, but yeah, it's not. It's not nearly as professionalized. This is this is. I'm going way back to a gazillion years ago. My uh, uh, my uh, academic work on professionalization of state legislatures. Yes, this was a thing. And I needed a dissertation topic, and that turned out to be it. I just assumed maybe it was so boring, no one would actually read it and I just get passed along. It seemed to work. So I don't know, but, but I did end up learning a little bit about professionalization of state legislatures in the process, despite myself, I guess. So. So, to, my, to my point though, it's not even that you necessarily need a professional staff to do this. It's just, you got to have uh, a leadership that's, that's got the political savvy that, that sure. will have this play but out. Political savvy is like anything else, like having a good jump shot or, you know, what have you, 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 you get that through doing right through practice, I think, to a certain extent. And so I think these folks are just going to be a lot less practiced than they would be in Ohio or New York or, you know, California or the other more professionalized legislatures where I think you should listen to the show. I mean, we could pick up all kinds of good points. There you go. You know, really, that that would be a good idea. I would just add really quickly that I don't think she's in any danger of alienating her base. And when we look at these representatives that speak out, you know, oh, man, they're not going to get elected. Oh, no, they're they're going to get elected. I mean, uh, Our U.S. congressmen who, you know, uh, they go back to their district and the district loves the hell out of them and hates the heck out of everybody else. And so this will be seen as doing, um, you know, service for the district and standing up for something huge, uh, which probably will increase uh, election maybe in the future. But, you know, that that's where I think that really comes down to it is speaking out has apart from being uh, taken out of the voting structure for her back with her constituents. Um, does not have necessarily a negative intonation there. Just ask Marjorie Taylor Greene. She could tell you all about how full it is. Anyway, you know, we have run long, so we have to stop at this point. But there's an awful lot that we still want to get to, and we will on the midweek show. We're going to be talking about, this is an interesting story, uh, uh, 
a man that the attorney general of Oklahoma is asking the Supreme Court to not allow Oklahoma to execute. Uh, strange story. Anyway, we'll get to that. Also, some stuff about a raise in mortgage fees that has a lot of folks on the right concerned about creeping socialism, I guess you could say. And uh, I'm always concerned about creeping socialism. I know you like, are, Jay. That's because socialism is always creeping. That slope is very slippery. And also we might talk a little about a little bit about American values and how a new survey suggests they may have changed in some pretty significant ways in recent years and maybe not for the better. Again, all that on the midweek show. If you are if you are a supporter, you'll get that whole midweek show. Well, midweek, I guess Tuesday's midweek. That's when it usually drops. If you're not, we really hope you consider becoming a supporter. And this is a great time. Even if you are a supporter, remember at the top of the show, I mentioned that we're going to be starting that new supporters only segment that uh, allows you to pick the story and then you to actually be part of it as we are recording it. That could be really interesting. It could be a flaming Hindenburg-like disaster, but I am eager to find out <laughs> what it's going to be. And you could be part of that anyway. That's for supporters at the $10 a month or, or more level. So you might want to check all of that out. You can just go to patreon.com slash politicsguys. But you can also support us on Venmo or at politicsguys or through PayPal. And again, all that's always in the show notes as well as at politicsguys.com slash support. And if you would like to get our full midweek show, but you can't financially support us right now, Totally not a problem. Shoot me an email, mikepoliticsguys.com, and I will take care of that for you. And regardless of whether you're a supporter or a not supporter, or a hate listener, what have you, we would really appreciate if you could subscribe, rate, and review us on whatever podcast app you're listening to on, as well as sharing episodes on social media. That definitely helps spread the word. And if you want to get in touch with us for any reason, there is our Discord group, which is always fantastic and interesting and sometimes weird in some very good ways. Uh, that's for that's for our Patreon supporters. You can also email us, mail at politicsguys.com. And we are on Facebook and Twitter, and you'll find links to those in the show notes. And finally, as always, a very special thanks to our fantastic executive producers, Bruce Johnson, Wilma Moreno, Andra Masker, Daniel Toe, Ryan Beasley, Don Oglesby, and Ivan English. We'll be back with a new episode for you next week. We hope you'll join us.